Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. And let's pray. Father, we're confident that as we hold a Bible in our hands, that we're dealing with, we're considering, and we're applying the Word of God. And in particular, the very words of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, deity in a human form, God the Son, the King of kings, speaking of things regarding His kingdom and the subjects of His kingdom. We've considered last week, and so tonight, Father, these wonderful stories, the parables of Jesus. Help us to think clearly and to see what we might learn from this, deepen and further our understanding that we might not only hear, but after tonight, tell others. Give us, Lord, that sense of boldness as we approach this wonderful time of the year to tell people who don't know you about you and what you can do for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A picture's worth a thousand words, as the saying goes. From what we can determine, that little statement became popularized in the 1920s by an American advertising firm. It was probably said by others before that period, but a picture is worth a thousand words. We know that to be true. That's why we have cameras. That's why there are cameras on mobile devices, so that you can capture the moment. Because what a, what a picture can do saves a lot of explaining with words. But back in the days of Jesus where there were no cameras... They used word pictures, stories, and storytelling was huge. And rabbis often, to teach their disciples deeper spiritual truths, often used analogous terms, parabolic stories. Jesus in chapter 7 gives us seven parables of the kingdom. He talks about the beginning of the kingdom, the expansion of the kingdom, the opposition to the kingdom the subjects of the kingdom, and the culmination of the kingdom, all in a single chapter. We estimate, by putting all of the red letters side by side in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that a full one-third of Jesus' teaching was using this popular rabbinical method of storytelling, parables. As we mentioned last time, The word parable, parabole in Greek, means to cast alongside. So that if you take a difficult truth or if you take an abstract truth, a spiritual truth, and you want to make it understandable, you place alongside that spiritual abstract truth something common, something that is easily understood, a human analogy, something from the natural world, And as people understand the thing from the natural world, it will deepen their understanding of what's next to it from the spiritual world. So the kingdom parables, and we went through the first parable, the parable of the sower. And um, we, we covered, but not really explained. We went all the way down to about verse 24, but I'm going to take you back to verse 18 just to fill in. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. 
This is he who received the seed by the wayside or the seed that fell on the pathway. That's the hard soil. And because it's the footpath, the seed can't penetrate, can't become moisturized, can't be tilled. And so it just lays on the surface and it's vulnerable. And because we mentioned last time that birds would follow the one who's sowing the seed, would follow them around, he would pick up the seed that fell on the ground. That's the person who, as soon as they hear anything remotely about absolute truth, about God, or specifically about Jesus Christ, you know the kind, you know the type, they automatically turn off. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. Don't tell me. The enemy has come and snatched it away. They have the hard heart. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, Jesus explains, he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. This is the shallow-hearted person. They get all excited. They receive it with joy. They go yes to it automatically, immediately. That's a good sign. But for there to be any growth at all, you need a root system. You have to go deep. If all of your Christian growth is top growth and not under the soil, you won't be able to stand the heat of the summer, so to speak, the persecution, the tribulation. So we know that sunshine is good for plants. But the heat on a summer day could also kill a plant. It could take its toll on that tender young shoot unless the roots go down and there's something substantial, a root system that's connected to a water source. So this is speaking of the person who's emotional, but they just can't stand the heat, man. Heat being ridicule, persecution, tribulation, because you're a believer, you didn't expect to get hassled like this, you didn't expect the repercussions, or in Sunday's terminology, the scars that would come because of it, and you don't last. You need a better root system. So they endure only for a while. When tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know two truths. Number one, it's the most awesome experience possible. There's a, a peace of mind, a peace of heart that you experience. You have the hope of heaven. But at the same time, and here's the dichotomy, it's the most wonderful experience, but the Christian life is not easy. It's hard. There's some difficult hot spots that occur in every believer's life. And to stand the heat, you need a root system. To paint the picture that the Christian life is all, ooh, ah, smile, joy, uplifting to uplifting thought every day, is silly. It's stupid. Your body couldn't handle that kind of experience. You know that's not true. Now, I know it's popular to say that, and the most popular theologies, unfortunately, will tout that. A national best-selling book is called Your Best Life Now. Saying you should be living, this is your life, and this should... The, you should have your best life now. Prosperity, success, even wealth. Is your best life now? Well, if you're not a Christian, 
your best life is now. And I would suggest that you get all that you can out of this life now. Because this is as good as it will get. After this will be eternal torment. An eternal dying, so to speak. So if you're an unbeliever, this is your best life now. If you're a believer, this isn't even close. In fact, the Bible says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It hasn't even entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. What you're going to experience in the future is unimaginable. We only get tastes of it. So the book really should be your best life then, not now. Paul even said, I suppose that the sufferings we experience now, the sufferings we experience now aren't worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. So it's not easy. It's a wonderful life. It's the best possible life, but it's not easy. And your forefathers and your brothers and sisters around the world in persecuted countries are experiencing very difficult times because they're believers. To walk into a prison where somebody has been arrested because they're a pastor, they've lost their family, and to say, hey, you ought to read this book, Your Best Life Now, would be ludicrous. It's not even on his radar screen. He's, he's willfully giving up the present comforts for the future glory. So Jesus is talking about a person who receives but doesn't really get that. And during times of tribulation and persecution, they will fall away. They go, I, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here. Immediately he stumbles. Now he who received... The seed, verse 22, among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Oh, I thought I had a water. But he who receives the seed, verse 23, on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now, in verse 22, it's speaking about somebody who was once fruitful. Listen, once fruitful, but their life got busy. Busy. Now, there's a word we all get. We all understand. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm I'm busy. Good. It's better to be busy than to have nothing to do. But it's also good to keep your priorities because if you're too busy for God, you're too busy. If you're too busy for spiritual things, if you're too busy for spiritual nourishment, God bless you, Summer. Give it up for Summer. Then you're just too busy. Notice what he says. The cares of this world. I don't know your personal situation, but all of you, all of us, we have cares. We have worries. We have things that can strangle us emotionally. And they're all particular to our individual lives. They can choke the seed. A day of worrying is more exhausting than a week of work. Amen? Nothing zaps you of energy and motivation like the cares, the worries, the conundrums, the problems, the issues of this life. And just when you deal with one, another comes. So in many ways, this is a good case to live simply, to keep priorities and to live simply. And to stay on target. He also mentions in verse 22, the deceitfulness of riches. Interesting phrase. 
Why are riches deceitful? Because they make promises that they can't keep. They deceive you. The commercial says, if you buy this, you'll be satisfied. You know how it is with technology? We love technology until the new iPad comes up. Oh, it has that many megapixels in the camera. Oh, it's that fast. Yeah, gosh, this thing's so slow. I have to wait like a millisecond. I just can't believe it. So built into our worldly system, built into the world of things and gadgets and even advertisement, is this whole idea of making you dissatisfied with the previous product so you'll get the new one. And you get the new one and you are totally satisfied. Man, you're stoked that day, that week, temporarily, but not for long. Now, there's nothing wrong with having gadgets. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. There's nothing wrong with being a rich person, being successful. Nothing wrong with it. However, that comes with a warning. The most complicated lives I have ever known are people who have lots and lots of things or material goods or money. They tend to crowd the altar of one's heart. And it's not just those who have. The Bible says those who would be rich, they fall into error. They're striving hard to get it. They can choke up the seed and it becomes unfruitful. Then he who received the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. So Jesus has explained in that parable the course of the kingdom. The kingdom will expand and the expansion will come by the sowing of the seed of the word of God, the truth. And people will hear it. Not everyone will get into it. Some people will immediately reject it or marginalize it. Some people will get emotional, but they won't last. Some people will be very shallow in their commitment, but there will be some. And it's always just some, just a remnant. True believers, the 25% of those who are bearing forth fruit at different levels. Some a little, some a lot, some in between. So the kingdom is expanded. Now, we get into the opposition of the kingdom. What Jesus does here is he, he, he changes his analogy from the seed that is sown into what the seed produces in terms of a person. He'll speak of the wheat as being a, a person and the weeds as being a person. So I'm just prepping you for the next one, the next parable. The weeds and the wheat or the wheat and the tares. The wheat are genuine believers, as you will see. The weeds are false believers. Another parable he put forth to them saying, now, would you just allow me to do something before I, uh, we get into this? In the, in the first parable, and we covered the explanation just now, in that first parable, Jesus gives his disciples and us insight into what it's like to invest spiritually in the life of somebody else. If you were to look at every person, or if you were to look at your workplace, or where you go to school, or your neighborhood, or your family, as a field, and the potential, if you were to sow truth into those people's hearts, what might grow as a result of that. Now, I was reminded of that truth of that first parable in this letter. I just picked it up off my desk before I came out. It's a letter from a gal. I won't read it all because it's several pages and includes another letter from somebody else, but I want you to get this. She says, I listened to your clear, concise teachings of God's Word on 90.1 out of Binghamton, Windsor, New York. And on Saturday night, I attend Calvary of Albuquerque via your live webcasting. To put it simply, thank you. So she tells that she was listening, and they have a pastor of the month program, and this one pastor in the New York area uh, was going to send a resource to one of the callers, whoever would call into the radio station. She called in. She won the resource. 
the pastor sent her a package of some of his resources along, she said, along with a big set of MP3, stacks of MP3 called 729. Now, 729 is our series from Genesis to Revelation. And uh, so she said, he sent your teachings, Genesis to Revelation, and he said, perhaps I would learn and enjoy um, the teaching of God's Word as much as he did. So he was passing the resource along. The letter goes on to say she took a trip to Peru. She met a young man named Eric, who was her translator. This young man said he wanted to study the Word of God and become a pastor one day. She went back home and she thought of Eric. What, what could this young man use in terms of his pastoral ministry? So she thought, I'll get him a good study Bible, I'll get him a couple commentaries, and I'm going to give him a 729 Genesis to Revelation, Skip's teaching. She sent that to him. Didn't hear anything back, didn't hear anything back, didn't hear anything back. Finally, she gets a letter, like a couple years later. The letter had been sent, forwarded by a friend. He forgot about it, kept it in his book. Oh, yeah, let me give you this letter from from Eric. And um, the letter basically says, you know, thank you for all this stuff. He's pastoring a small church now in Peru. And she said, he said, uh, and thank you for the Bible study, the MP3 CD from, from Pastor Skip Heist. It's spelled a little bit differently than I spell it. He says, it has changed my thoughts about how to teach the Bible. Before I would preach on Sunday, I was thinking, what portion of the Bible can I preach from now? But after listening to the CDs, I started to preach the Word of God book by book, chapter by chapter, every Sunday. Now I'm preaching the book of Joshua, and I'm in chapter 9. So I believe that God led you to send the CDs to me and to teach uh, God's Word this way so that I would do it for the rest of my life. My goal is to preach all the books and chapters of the 66 books of the Bible for the rest of my life. Now, here's what got my attention. She connected these dots. Your MP3 729 Genesis to Revelation, Albuquerque, New Mexico, to this pastor up in Poughkeepsie, New York, uh, to the Bridge Christian Radio, Old Bridge, New Jersey, to me in Halstead, Pennsylvania, and then her mission trip, to AMG Mission Team from Chattanooga, Tennessee, to Pastor Eric in this church in Peru, Isn't our God amazing? And so you think of the spiritual replication and reproduction. So I just want to share that letter because you just never know. You might be planting a seed that could germinate. That person might move away, might tell somebody else. That person may be the next Billy Graham. So look at the potential that God has placed before you and just go, rub your hands, go, Lord, this is awesome. What might grow because of this? Well, here's something else that might grow now. Verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The word for tares, I called it weeds, is the Greek word zizanion. And it's believed that it refers to the bearded darnel. The bearded darnel looks identical to wheat when it first begins to grow. You cannot tell the difference. 
servants would go out and check the fields regularly and they would see what's growing, monitor it and see if, if anybody had sabotaged their fields. Now get this. In ancient times, it was a common practice if you hated somebody to sow bearded darnel in their wheat field because it's going to crowd out the wheat. You're not going to get as big of a harvest. That's why the Roman Empire had laws against sowing weeds in fields like this. There were actually laws against it. So at first you can't tell the difference. You can't tell them apart. They're indistinguishable. But once the plant begins to form its head, it's unmistakable. You say, that's a weed. That is not. That's false. That's true. So that's the point of the parable. Now he'll explain the parable in just a minute. In verse 29, he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you will uproot the wheat with them. The servants would see the, the weeds growing up and say, well, Let us just take them out. But because they're so close, and especially in their tenderness, you can't always tell them apart. No, just wait till the very end of the season. Then it'll be unmistakable and you can pull out the ones that are the wrong ones and keep the ones that are the right one. Let them alone, he says. Throughout history, unfortunately, there have been Christian movements that have tried to forcibly evict tares from the wheat field or forcibly change people into believing the way we believe. And that's a mistake. Constantine, who became what is called the first Christian emperor because history says he saw a sign at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And the sign was the sign of a cross. And the sign said, in this, or the, the word said, in this sign, go and conquer. That after the battle, after he won, he attributed it to the cross, attributed it to Christ, proclaimed himself a Christian, uh, issued the Edict of Milan, Basically, the Christians who've been persecuted, um, that edict went away so that um, the new edict was Christians aren't going to be persecuted. We treat them with love and respect. But later on, people who did not believe what he thought was the orthodox way, he was going after them and punishing them and even killing some. Then there's the horrible history of the Crusaders who thought, let's expunge the Holy Land of infidels, infidels according to the Christian tradition, they said, Muslims and Jews, butchering them, pregnant women killing them with one swipe of the sword and soldiers rejoicing that by the grace of God I'd kill two with one blow. In the name of Christ. Or the Spanish Inquisition, inquiring to find out who's a believer or not and then the laws that were passed against them. That is a mistake. Jesus says, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Now hold that thought, because there will be an explanation of this in a few verses. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, bind them in bundles, and burn them. Gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, hold that thought, because the disciples are at this point going, I don't totally get it. So he's going to explain it. But, verse 31, another parable he put forth to them. Okay, we have a text. Let's put this up, a question that comes up. And it says, There are many commentators and many interpretations of these parables. How do we know who is right? Well, first of all, we have to assume, not assume, we have to say we know that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he gave the parable. We know that the disciples totally didn't understand it all because they asked Jesus the question. The first parable, he explained himself. The second one, they go, oh, we, we, we don't get that whole weed and wheat thing. Could you explain that? So he'll tell them. And that in the explanations come some keys to helping us understand the rest of the parables. Now, if you recall... We said that the first parable is the key to understanding all the parables. Jesus said, if you don't understand this parable, how then will you not understand all the, how will you understand the other parables? 
So he gives us certain keys. So if, they, if certain things mean one thing in one parable, you can be pretty rest assured that they're going to hold that similar value in the other parables. Where a lot of the commentators have gone wrong, and I'm not saying that I'm smarter than all the other commentators, I am saying that where they have gone wrong is a failure to look at the balance of the Scripture and find the key terms as explained by Christ or the Scripture in other places. And I'll show you that as we go through some of these parables. Let's continue, and you'll see it. Here's the third parable. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which is indeed the least of all the seeds. Now, before any of you ask the question, what do you mean it's the least of all the seeds? There's smaller seeds in the world than the mustard seed. He's not talking about every seed on earth. He's speaking about the typical seeds of a Middle Eastern garden, an herb garden. They would understand this. Yeah, that's right. In my herb garden, that's the smallest seed. It's the least. Which is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The mustard seed doesn't grow into a tree typically. It grows into a bush. But there is a um, variety called the cardal mustard in the Middle East that grows into a bushy tree about 12 to 15 feet high. And the branches can be substantive enough in certain cases to hold the weight of a bird. It's not typical, but they can grow abnormally large. And this is what most believe Jesus was referring to, first of all. Um, what is the interpretation? Here's the typical, most popular interpretation. Is that um, the gospel started small, like a seed, 120 in an upper room, first of all 12, first of all Jesus, then the 12, then 120 in the upper room. And that seed was sown on Pentecost, and it has grown, it permeated the Roman Empire, it has gone throughout the world, and the world is able to lodge in its branches. Humanity is able to take refuge underneath that marvelous bushy tree called the church. That's the typical interpretation. Here's the problem. And it answers the question on the text. Jesus doesn't offer an explanation of that parable. So we're left with interpreting this way. We have to find things that Jesus has already interpreted so we can make this interpretation. Since there's no explanations, let's find out what Jesus has already explained and apply that to this parable. Okay, so first of all, we have birds. Before a person says, oh yeah, birds, that's, that's the world. That's, that's the, the, the world taking shelter underneath uh, the wings of the church. People coming to be saved. Those are, those are Christians. Well, in the parable of the sower... The birds came down and stole the seed. Jesus says that was the wicked one. Right? So in the parables, the birds were wicked. They weren't good. They were bad. And there's enough of that symbolism throughout the scripture all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 18. Mystery Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Heaven rejoices. It has become the habitation, the cage of every unclean bird. Because bird was seen as a symbol of evil. And listen, I've been around, I've told you my pigeon stories. You don't have to convince me. I think it's a very apt symbol in many cases. So in the parables and in other scriptures, birds aren't necessarily good things, but can typify evil. Then you have the tree itself. In a few passages in the Old Testament, the Jewish listener would understand this. Daniel chapter 4, Ezekiel, and others. Trees symbolize world power. So yes, Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It is going to grow. But all that lodges within its branches aren't necessarily good things. 
There's going to be a lot of evil that goes on in the name of my kingdom. There's going to be wonderful things that happen, but in the name of the king, there will also be horrible things that happen. That's how I see the interpretation of this parable based upon some of those key elements. It will be large enough to possess lots of people and lots of belief systems and even false teachers. And again, you'll get another explanation in the next parable. Another parable, he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leaven. Now, if the first parable of the mustard seed speaks of outward growth, it speaks of something inward because it's hidden inside something. In every kitchen, every Jewish kitchen, the women would keep, well, this is when they, when they would make their bread, their leavened bread, their be, the, the bread with yeast, they would take from the dough, once it rises, before it's put in the oven, a little piece of the leavened or fermented dough, and they would, they would place it aside and keep it in their kitchens. So that next time they would make dough, they would then hide that little piece of fermented dough in the middle of the new batch of dough, and that yeast would eventually permeate through the whole thing. And then they would take a little bit more dough, put it aside, and, and that cycle would continue. That's leaven. Something is going to permeate and go through the whole thing. It's speaking of growth. The typical explanation of this parable, the popular explanation of this parable, is that that's the church. Start small, grows through the world, and eventually it's the conquering power of the gospel. This is an especially popular uh, interpretation by dominion theologians, if you're familiar with that branch of theology. We're going to take over the world for the sake... We're going to bring the kingdom of God in now. We have to vote in Christian politicians and we'll make Christian institutions and we'll Christianize the world. Kingdom theology. Granted, the church started small. Jesus was born in the backwaters of the Roman Empire in a little nothing town called Bethlehem. But it happened to be the city of David fulfilling Scripture. He took around him 12 men that he called apostles, and he sent them out. And there were other disciples as well, 120 only in that upper room. On Pentecost, 3,000 souls came to know Christ. Later on, another 5,000. It is believed that the early church, after the first several months, had upwards of 20,000 people. It permeated the Roman Empire. It traveled around the world. And one day, in the millennium, Jesus Christ will rule and reign over all the earth. So there is truth in that. But just as birds meant something evil, understand that the term leaven doesn't sound good to Jewish people. It's a symbol of evil. First of all, at Passover, all leaven was purged from the homes. All the sacrifices of the Jews had to be offered without leaven because of the symbolism of its permeation. It's, it's, um, it's fermenting, it's breaking down, it's putrefying. So it's a symbol of evil. Listen to this. Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And again, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. Now, at first they go, what is he talking about? Does he want some bread? And the author goes on to describe, he wasn't talking about the leaven of bread. He was saying the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So leaven meant hypocrisy. The leaven of the Sadducees meant their false doctrines. Jesus spoke of the leaven of Herod. Twice in the New Testament epistles, Paul said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, the first time he mentions that is 1 Corinthians, and he's speaking about immorality in the church. If you allow immorality and immoral people to go unchecked, that is going to spread like leaven, like fermented dough through the whole lump. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. So he's telling the church, take care of that situation, Corinth. When he wrote the second time to Galatia, he said the same thing. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. This time he was speaking of legalism, 
legalistic uh, pursuits within the church that were also destroying the integrity of their belief system. So it's not a good thing when he says, um, it's like leaven that a woman hides in a measure of meal until all of it was leavened. So, yes, the church is going to spread, like we mentioned. It's going to go throughout the whole world. But that growth is not going to be necessarily good growth. Within the branches will be evil birds, false teachers, false doctrine. And it's going to permeate. You and I know the difference between Christianity, real Christianity, and the larger umbrella, let's call it Christendom. Under that umbrella of Christendom are a lot of different belief systems. Many of them are opposed to the Christ that we believe in. They're opposed to the teachings of Christ. They call themselves Christians and they're in the branches, they're in the dough, they're under the umbrella of Christendom. And you and I would say, well, that's not a real believer. But the world doesn't know any different. To them, a born-again Christian, a Mormon, a Jehovah Witness, a Unitarian, are all the same. Unification Church, Sun Young Moon, Christian. There's a lot of birds, fowls, that have lodged within the branches and are under the umbrella of Christendom that is not true. You go, that's bad. Something's got to be done. Oh, it will. It will. There's a judgment coming. Until then, we have to preach the truth. We have to be patient with people. We have to be patient with people. It's a tender line. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. Well, I better speed up. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And then Jesus sent out the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, so now they're alone. They're not embarrassed to ask this question. Jesus is inside. They don't want to act dumb outside with everybody listening. So his disciples came to him saying, um, explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and he said to them, he didn't go. He just answered them. I like that. And he said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus Christ. He's the initial sower of truth. He's the one who initiates the kingdom. He's the king. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. Now, many interpretations, that was one of the questions we had. Many interpretations have gone wrong because they have failed to consider that Jesus said the field is the world. So in other parables, they make the field this and they make the field the church and they make the field that. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. So Jesus says these are people we're talking about. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So the kingdom was started. It was inaugurated. It began with Jesus Christ. He sowed into the disciples. They became apostles. They sowed into the lives of other people. It got passed down. The truth was sown into our hearts as well. But Satan comes along and he opposes the work of Christ by planting his emissaries in different places borrowing certain truths that sounds oh so Christian to the uninitiated and planting them in congregations or starting whole new works and false doctrine. And so 
There's the expansion of the kingdom. There's the opposition of the kingdom. A lot of growth, a lot of good growth. But with that growth was also false growth and false doctrine. That's now. In the end, it will all be sorted out. What does that mean to us? It's simple. This isn't the day of judgment. This is the day of evangelism. Don't worry about the judgment. Worry about the evangelism. Just sow the seed. I walked into a bookstore one time in Southern California years ago. I didn't know a lot of the doctrines that I came to learn. But I walked into a bookstore and there was somebody uh, who was uh, waiting on me and there was somebody else who came inside and was just asking a few questions, asked me a few questions. And I could tell this person wasn't a believer and was sincerely asking questions about truth. And I began witnessing to him. And the person behind the register was listening, was listening and getting very nervous which I felt odd in a Christian bookstore. And um, finally, the guy I was talking to left, and he came up to me, the teller behind the the counter, and he said, um, he shook his head, he goes, that wasn't wise what you were doing. I said, pardon me? I heard the whole conversation. He said, how do you know, he said, that that person was chosen by God? If that wasn't one of God's chosen... You shouldn't be witnessing to him. And I said, well, God didn't tell me who he has chosen and who he's not. Let me ask you a question. How do you know he's not chosen? Well, he's not a believer. I said, yet. Don't forget to add that word, yet. We may have just sown a seed and that may germinate into something wonderful. Well, you know, and and just the whole getting down, the whole Calvinistic bent of you don't preach the gospel, you know, to everybody because there's some who are elect and some who are not. And that probably guy isn't an elect person. And just I didn't understand the belief system at that time, but I knew enough to know he was wrong. And I read what Charles Spurgeon, who I think is a balanced Calvinist, he said, it would have been nice if the Lord would have just put a yellow stripe down the back of every person He has elected and make it easy for us. But He hasn't done that. Only He can see the stripe. We can't. He's just told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And I think that's a good balance. I do believe in election. I don't know who they are. And so we're told to go for it. And God will sort it out. Now is the time of evangelism. Verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for the joy of it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. We have two parables, as I see it, teach the same basic truth or truths. Truth number one, the value of the treasure or the pearl, depending on the parable. Number two, the delight of the one who acquires it. Value and delight. So we have two parables that I think teach the same basic thing. Here's the question. Who's the man? Who's the merchant? What's the treasure? What are the pearls? Here's the popular interpretation. Ready? Jesus Christ is the pearl of great price and the treasure. The sinner is the one who seeks. And when he finds Jesus Christ and knows that he's the truth, it's worth giving up everything that he might acquire salvation. Really? That's what it means? Now, I have a problem with that interpretation. First of all, because back in verse 38, the field is the world. I can't buy that. Number two, the man in that parable is Jesus Christ. So again, we don't have a, we don't have the interpretation given of that. I now have to use certain key elements and start making application. Okay, so let's break down that popular interpretation. Jesus is the treasure and the sinner is seeking Christ. First of all, Jesus is not hidden. 
He's probably the best known figure in all of human history. Based on what I have read in Encyclopedia Britannica, based on hits on the internet, probably that name, he is the most popular person who ever existed. He's not hidden. Number two, the sinner does not seek God. I know it might feel that way from a human standpoint, but doesn't the Bible say there are none who seek God and there's none who are righteous? No, not one. None who seek after God. All we like sheep have gone astray. So that doesn't fit. Number three, salvation can't be purchased, can it? Last time I checked, which was today, (laughs) salvation is a free gift, not of works. It's a free gift. You believe and he gives it to you. You don't earn it. Number four. If we could purchase it, what do you have of any worth that you could sell to get him? Well, you know, I'm a pretty... Don't even go there. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, this is a picture of Jesus Christ who came down from heaven and gave everything. He sold all, so to speak, to buy the world to get the treasure. And the treasure is you and I. It's a picture of the Savior seeking the sinner, not the sinner seeking the Savior. Now that fits. It fits along the lines of another parable. Jesus spoke about a man who had a hundred sheep and one sheep went astray and he didn't go, ah, forget that sheep. I got good 99 here. He left the 99 and went seeking the one lost sheep. Am I right? Jesus said that he had come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now that fits the parable. Something noteworthy about that second parable of the pearl. Did you know that pearls were not valuable to Jewish people at that time? There's not a mention of a pearl in the entire Old Testament. The Jewish people saw pearls sort of like coral from the ocean. It's like, yeah, it's sort of nice, but whatever. Not valuable. It was valuable, however, to Gentiles. That should be a little clue for you. Number two, the pearl was the result of an injury. It was the result of an organism dealing with an irritation. An irritation. Precious gems usually are mined and cut and polished. Rubies, diamonds, sapphires. Not a pearl. What happens is a little piece of dirt works its way into the shell of an oyster and irritates it. The oyster responds by sending out this produced serum called knacker, N-A-C-R-E, knacker. And it covers the little piece of sand with a layer of knacker. And then another secretion, then another secretion, and another secretion until a pearl is formed over a period of time. It's the response of the organism to the irritation that got inside of it. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful picture of Gentiles. We're not under the original covenant. We've been grafted in. We are basically... Well, I'll look at it. I'll put it my way. I'm a piece of dirt covered in the righteousness of Christ. That's the pearl. A piece of dirt covered with something beautiful. The irritation of sin has been covered by the sinlessness and the perfection of Christ. And that is just a beautiful illustration. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. So those of you who remember that 1960s show, (laughs) do you remember it, dragnet? Okay, a lot of you. Did did it play here? Okay. Joe Friday. That's not what he's talking about. Sorry to even put that in your mind. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea, gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to the shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just um, among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
Okay, the disciples all understood this parable. They were fishermen. There were three types of fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Number one, the slowest kind, was the, um, the line and hook. That's where you're catching one fish at a time. It's the slowest method. They didn't do much of that. The only time you do that is if you just want a fish to go eat right now. But those who worked in the trade used two other types. Type number two was the individual personal net. That is where you take a net that has a cord attached and weights, and you fling it out, and it makes this large, round circle that goes over a portion of water. There's weights that go down over a section, and fish are caught in that individual net. You pull in the cord, and you make a catch. The third was the dragnet. It took a team. You had usually two boats and a net that would hang down in the water, weights at the bottom, floats on the top, so it was like a moving wall. And the boats would encircle an area and drag it to the shore. Now, that would drag in everything. Good fish, bad fish, debris, plastic bottles. They didn't have those then, but they would now if you did it. You get everything. So then you have to pick and throw the garbage away. You have to throw the bad fish away. And you keep the good fish, put them in baskets, take them to market. It's a parable of the judgment that is coming. And the end of the age... Verse 50, cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I just want you to notice something as we work our way through the gospel of Matthew. Jesus will speak more of judgment and more of hell than anyone else in the Bible. Don't you ever think that hell was invented by some crazed preacher or angry fundamentalist? It's a biblical doctrine. And what breaks my heart is that every single day, 147,000 people die on earth and will stand before God's judgment. And God's dragnet is slowly but steadily moving through every single day of history, moving, moving toward the shores of judgment. And one day God will deal with every single fish. So we have an opportunity to tell people the truth. We have an opportunity to respond to Christ. And Jesus said to them, I, 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 this just tickles me. He said to them, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, Lord. Now, if I would have been there, I would have gone, oh, really? So why did you have to ask him a couple times? What did you mean by that? Have you understood what I said about the kingdom? Yep. You understand how precious people are to me? Yep. You understand that the kingdom of God is going to grow, but there's going to be a lot of bad stuff that happens associated with it? Oh, yeah, I get it all. I don't think they did, but they said they did. So now Jesus sort of turns the responsibility on them. He said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure or out of his treasure things new and old. Okay? You understand these things? Now you have a responsibility. You've just graduated from being a king's kid to a king's scribe. You have a responsibility with all the truths that you now know and understand to provide those truths into people's lives. Now a householder or the head of a household was responsible to provide for those in the house. And he usually had a room or a storehouse where he would keep everything that was needed and distribute it as it was required. So the truths of the kingdom of God are to be brought out new and old, good and bad, truth about heaven, truth about hell, all of it, so that people can get it and understand it. And so it is with us. Once we understand, we are responsible You have heard our responsibility in some form or fashion. You can shoot off an email. You can have a conversation with a friend. You can make a phone call. You can write a letter if people do that anymore. Oh, yeah, they do. I just got one. (laughs) And feed into other lives the truths that God has fed into yours. Actually, it's a perfect place for us to quit tonight because um, verse 53 um, could even be attached to the next chapter in the way it transitions as Jesus moves from where he is in Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee area, 
to Nazareth, his hometown. So we'll pick it up next time as we get into chapter 14. Keep praying for my voice. Um, It might sound like a totally different person next week. I don't know. But um, let's pray tonight. Father, we want to thank you that um, you call us to be your kids. We are wheat in the field. We have grown and we have borne fruit. We are thankful, Lord, that as weak as we are, you delight in using the base, the foolish, the weak, that you might get the glory and the strength might be in the truth more than the truth bearer. I thank you, Father, sincerely for the level of hunger in the lives of so many who have gathered here tonight, those who have gathered at our Santa Fe campus, those who have chosen to watch online or are listening by radio. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a deep work with these truths and that they would be added to our arsenal so that we might be a blessing to other people, that we will never become a terminal of your blessing, but a channel of your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.